This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Ian Bartholomew. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Four, Part Two. When all was over, James retired from the bedside to his closet, where, during a quarter of an hour, he remained alone. Meanwhile, the privy councillors who were in the palace assembled, the new king came forth, and took his place at the head of the board. He commenced his administration, according to usage, by a speech to the council. He expressed his regret for the loss which he had just sustained and he promised to imitate the singular lenity which had distinguished the late reign. He was aware, he said, that he had been accused of a fondness for arbitrary power, but that was not the only falsehood which had been told of him. He was resolved to maintain the established government both in church and state. The Church of England he knew to be eminently loyal. It should therefore always be his care to support and defend her. The laws of England, he also knew, were sufficient to make him as great a king as he could wish to be. He would not relinquish his own rights, but he would respect the rights of others. He had formerly risked his life in defence of his country, and he would still go as far as any man in support of her just liberties. This speech was not, like modern speeches on similar occasions, carefully prepared by the advisers of the sovereign. It was the extemporaneous expression of the new king's feelings at a moment of great excitement. The members of the council broke forth into clamours of delight and gratitude. The Lord President, Rochester, in the name of his brethren, expressed a hope that His Majesty's most welcome declaration would be made public. The Solicitor-General, Henny H. Finch, offered to act as clerk. He was a zealous churchman, and as such, was naturally desirous that there should be some permanent record of the gracious promises which had just been uttered. Those promises, he said, have made so deep an impression on me that I can repeat them word for word. He soon produced his report. James read it, approved of it, and ordered it be published. At a later period he said that he had taken this step without due consideration that his unpremeditated expressions touching the Church of England were too strong, and that Finch had, with a dexterity which had at the time escaped notice, made them still stronger. The King had been exhausted by long watching and by many violent emotions. He now retired to rest. The Privy Councillors, having respectfully accompanied him to his bedchamber, returned to their seats and issued orders for the ceremony of proclamation. The guards were under arms, the heralds appeared in their gorgeous coats, and the pageant proceeded without further obstruction. Casks of wine were broken up in the streets, and all who passed were invited to drink to the health of the new sovereign. But though an occasional shout was raised, the people were not in a joyous mood. Tears were seen in many eyes, and it was remarked that there was scarcely a housemaid in London who had not contrived to procure some fragment of black crepe in honour of King Charles. 
The funeral called forth much censure. It would indeed hardly have been accounted worthy of a noble and opulent subject. The Tories gently blamed the new king's parsimony. The Whigs sneered at his want of natural affection. And the fiery covenanters of Scotland exultingly proclaimed that the curse denounced of old against wicked princes had been signally fulfilled, and that the departed tyrant had been buried with the burial of an ass. Yet James commenced his administration with a large measure of public goodwill. His speech to the council appeared in print, and the impression which it produced was highly favourable to him. This, then, was the prince whom a faction had driven into exile and had tried to rob of his birthright, on the ground that he was a deadly enemy to the religion and laws of England. He had triumphed, he was on the throne, and his first act was to declare that he would defend the church and would strictly respect the rights of his people. The estimate which all parties had formed of his character added weight to every word that fell from him. The Whigs called him haughty, implacable, obstinate, regardless of public opinion. The Tories, while they extolled his princely virtues, had often lamented his neglect of the arts, which conciliate popularity. Satire itself had never represented him as a man likely to court public favour, by professing what he did not feel, and by promising what he had no intention of performing. On the Sunday which followed his accession, the speech was quoted in many pulpits. We have now for our church, cried one loyal preacher, the word of a king, and of a king who was never worse than his word. This pointed sentence was fast circulated through town and country, and was soon the watchword of the whole Tory party. The great officers of state had become vacant by the demise of the crown, and it was necessary for James to determine how they should be filled. Few of the members of the late cabinet had any reason to expect his favour. Sunderland, who was Secretary of State, and Godolphin, who was First Lord of the Treasury, had supported the Exclusion Bill. Halifax, who held the Privy Seal, had opposed that bill with unrivalled powers of argument and eloquence. But Halifax was the mortal enemy of despotism and of popery. He saw with dread the progress of the French arms on the continent, and the influence of French gold in the councils of England. Had his councils been followed, the law would have been strictly observed, clemency would have been extended to the vanquished Whigs, the Parliament would have been convoked in due season, an attempt would have been made to reconcile our domestic factions, and the principles of the Triple Alliance would again have guided our foreign policy. He had, therefore, incurred the bitter animosity of James. The Lord Keeper, Guilford, could hardly be said to belong to either of the parties into which the court was divided. He could by no means be called a friend of liberty, and yet he had so great a reverence for the letter of the law that he was not a serviceable tool of arbitrary power. He was accordingly designated by the vehement Tories as a trimmer, and was to James an object of aversion with which contempt was largely mingled. Ormond, who was Lord Steward of the Household and Viceroy of Ireland, then resided at Dublin. His claims on the royal gratitude were superior to those of any other subject. He had fought bravely for Charles I, he had shared the exile of Charles II, and since the Restoration he had, in spite of many provocations, kept his loyalty unstained. Though he had been disgraced during the predominance of the Cabal, he had never gone into factious opposition, 
and had, in the days of the Popish Plot and the Exclusion Bill, been foremost among the supporters of the throne. He was now old, and had been recently tried by the most cruel of all calamities. He had followed to the grave a son who should have been his own chief mourner, the gallant Ossory. The eminent services, the venerable age, and the domestic misfortunes of Ormond made him an object of general interest to the nation. The cavaliers regarded him as, both by right of seniority and by right of merit, their head. And the Whigs knew that, faithful as he had always been to the cause of monarchy, he was no friend either to popery or to arbitrary power. But high as he stood in the public estimation, he had little favour to expect from his new master. James, indeed, while still a subject, had urged his brother to make a complete change in the Irish administration. Charles had assented, and it had been arranged that, in a few months, there should be a new Lord Lieutenant. Rochester was the only member of the cabinet who stood high in the favour of the King. The general expectation was that he would be immediately placed at the head of affairs, and that all the other great officers of state would be changed. This expectation proved to be well founded in part only. Rochester was declared Lord Treasurer, and thus became Prime Minister. Neither a High Lord Admiral nor a Board of Admiralty was appointed. The new King, who loved the details of naval business, and would have made a respectable clerk in a dockyard at Chatham, determined to be his own master of marine. Under him, the management of that important department was confided to Samuel Pepys, whose library and diary have kept his name fresh to our time. No servant of the late sovereign was publicly disgraced. Sunderland exerted so much art and address, employed so many intercessors, and was in possession of so many secrets, that he was suffered to retain his seal. Godolphin's obsequiousness, industry, experience, and taciturnity could ill be spared. As he was no longer wanted at the treasury, he was made chamberlain to the queen. With these three lords the king took counsel on all important questions. As to Halifax, Ormond, and Guildford, he determined not yet to dismiss them, but merely to humble and annoy them. Halifax was told that he must give up the privy seal, and accept the presidency of the council. He submitted with extreme reluctance, for though the president of the council had always taken precedence of the Lord Privy Seal, the Lord Privy Seal was, in that age, a much more important officer than the Lord President. Rochester had not forgotten the jest which had been made a few months before his own removal from the treasury, and enjoyed in his turn the pleasure of kicking his rival upstairs. The privy seal was delivered to Rochester's elder brother, Henry, Earl of Clarendon. To Barillon James expressed the strongest dislike of Halifax. I know him well. I never can trust him. He shall have no share in the management of public business. As to the place which I have given him, it will just serve to show how little influence he has. But to Halifax it was thought convenient to hold a very different language. All the past is forgotten, said the king except the service which you did me in the debate on the Exclusion Bill. This speech has often been cited to prove that James was not so vindictive as he had been called by his enemies. It seems rather to prove that he by no means deserved the praises which have been bestowed on his sincerity by his friends. 
Ormond was politely informed that his services were no longer needed in Ireland, and was invited to repair to Whitehall and to perform the functions of Lord Steward. He dutifully submitted, but did not affect to deny that the new arrangement wounded his feelings deeply. On the eve of his departure, he gave a magnificent banquet at Kilmainham Hospital, then just completed, to the officers of the garrison of Dublin. After dinner he rose, filled a goblet to the brim with wine, and holding it up, asked whether he had spilt one drop. No, gentlemen, whatever the courtiers may say, I am not yet sunk into dotage. My hand does not fail me yet, and my hand is not steadier than my heart. To the health of King James! Such was the last farewell of Ormond to Ireland. He left the administration in the hands of Lord's Justices, and repaired to London, where he was received with unusual marks of public respect. Many persons of rank went forth to meet him on the road. A long train of equipages followed him into St. James's Square, where his mansion stood, and the square was thronged with a multitude which greeted him with loud acclamations. The great seal was left in Guildford's custody, but a marked indignity was at the same time offered him. It was determined that another lawyer of more vigour and audacity should be called to assist in the administration. The person selected was Sir George Jeffreys, Chief Justice of the Court of King's Bench. The depravity of this man has passed into proverb. Both the great English parties have attacked his memory with emulous violence, for the Whigs considered him as their most barbarous enemy and the Tories found it convenient to throw on him the blame of all the crimes which had sullied their triumph. A diligent and candid inquiry will show that some frightful stories which have been told concerning him are false or exaggerated. Yet the dispassionate historian will be able to make very little deduction from the vast mass of infamy with which the memory of the wicked judge has been loaded. He was a man of quick and vigorous parts, but constitutionally prone to insolence and to the angry passions. When just emerging from boyhood he had risen into practice at the old Bailey Bar, a bar where advocates had always used a license of tongue unknown in Westminster Hall. Here during many years his chief business was to examine and cross-examine the most hardened miscreants of a great capital. Daily conflicts with prostitutes and thieves called out and exercised his powers so effectually that he became the most consummate bully ever known in his profession. Tenderness for others and respect for himself were feelings alike unknown to him. He acquired a boundless command of the rhetoric in which the vulgar expressed hatred and contempt, the profusion of maledictions and vituperative epithets which composed his vocabulary could hardly have been rivalled in the fish-market or the bear-garden. His countenance and his voice must always have been unamiable, but these natural advantages, for such he seems to have thought them, he had improved to such a degree that there were few who, in his paroxysms of rage, could see or hear him without emotion. Impudence and ferocity sate upon his brow. The glare of his eyes had a fascination for the unhappy victim on whom they were fixed, yet his brow and his eye were less terrible than the savage lines of his mouth. His yell of fury, as was said by one who had often heard it, sounded like the thunder of the judgment day. 
these qualifications he carried while still a young man from the bar to the bench he early became common sergeant and then recorder of london as a judge at the city sessions he exhibited the same propensities which afterwards in a higher post gained for him an unenviable immortality already might be remarked in him the most odious vice which is incident to human nature a delight in misery merely as misery there was a fiendish exultation in the way in which he pronounced sentence on offenders their weeping and imploring seemed to titillate him voluptuously and he loved to scare them into fits by dilating with luxuriant amplification on all the details of what they were to suffer thus when he had an opportunity of ordering an unlucky adventuress to be whipped at the cart's tail hangman he would exclaim i charge you to pay particular attention to this lady scourge her soundly man scourge her till the blood runs down it is christmas a cold time for madam to strip in see that you warm her shoulders thoroughly he was hardly less facetious when he passed judgment on poor lodowick muggleton the drunken tailor who fancied himself a prophet impudent rogue roared jeffreys thou shalt have an easy easy punishment one part of this easy punishment was the pillory in which the wretched fanatic was almost killed with brickbats by this time the heart of jeffreys had been hardened to that temper which tyrants require in their worst implements he had hitherto looked for professional advancement to the corporation of london he had therefore professed himself a roundhead and had always appeared to be in the highest state of exultation when he explained to popish priests that they were to be cut down alive and were to see their own bowels burned than when he passed ordinary sentences of death but as soon as he had got all that the city could give he made haste to sell his forehead of brass and his tongue of venom to the court chiffinch who was accustomed to act as broker in infamous contracts of more than one kind lent his aid he had conducted many amorous and many political intrigues but he assuredly never rendered a more scandalous service to his masters than when he introduced jeffreys to whitehall the renegade soon found a patron in the obdurate and revengeful james but was always regarded with scorn and disgust by charles whose faults great as they were had no affinity with insolence and cruelty that man said the king has no learning no sense no manners and more impudence than ten carted street-walkers work was to be done however which could be trusted to no man who reverenced law or was sensible of shame and thus jeffreys at an age at which a barrister thinks himself fortunate if he is employed to conduct an important cause was made chief justice of king's bench his enemies could not deny that he possessed some of the qualities of a great judge his legal knowledge indeed was merely such as he had picked up in practice of no very high kind but he had one of those happily constituted intellects which across labyrinths of sophistry and through masses of immaterial facts go straight to the true point of his intellect however he seldom had the full use even in civil causes his malevolent and despotic temper perpetually disordered his judgment to enter his courts was to enter the den of a wild beast which none could tame 
and which was as likely to be roused to rage by caresses as by attacks. He frequently poured forth on plaintiffs and defendants, barristers and attorneys, witnesses and jurymen, torrents of frantic abuse, intermixed with oaths and curses. His looks and tones had inspired terror when he was merely a young advocate struggling into practice. Now that he was the head of the most formidable tribunal in the realm, there were few indeed who did not tremble before him. Even when he was sober, his violence was sufficiently frightful. But in general, his reason was overclouded, and his evil passions stimulated by the fumes of intoxication. His evenings were ordinarily given to revelry. People who saw him only over his bottle would have supposed him to be a man gross indeed, sottish, and addicted to low company and low merriment, but social and good-humoured. But he was constantly surrounded on such occasions by buffoons selected, for the most part, from among the vilest pettifoggers who practised before him. These men bantered and abused each other for his entertainment. He joined in their ribald talk, sang catches with them, and when his head grew hot, hugged and kissed them in an ecstasy of drunken fondness. But though wine at first seemed to soften his heart, the effect a few hours later was very different. He often came to the judgment seat, having kept the court waiting long, and yet, having but half slept off his debauch, his cheeks on fire, his eyes staring like those of a maniac. When he was in this state, his boon companions of the preceding night, if they were wise, kept out of his way, for the recollection of the familiarity to which he had admitted them inflamed his malignity, and he was sure to take every opportunity of overwhelming them with execration and invective. Not the least odious of his many odious peculiarities was the pleasure which he took in publicly browbeating and mortifying those whom, in his fits of maudlin tenderness, he had encouraged to presume on his favour. The services which the government had expected from him were performed, not merely without flinching, but eagerly and triumphantly. His first exploit was the judicial murder of Algernon Sidney. What followed? was in perfect harmony with this beginning. Respectable Tories lamented the disgrace which the barbarity and indecency of so great a functionary brought upon the administration of justice. But the excesses which filled such men with horror were titles to the esteem of James. Jeffreys, therefore, very soon after the death of Charles, obtained a seat in the cabinet and a peerage. This last honour was a signal mark of royal approbation for since the judicial system of the realm had been remodelled in the thirteenth century, no chief justice had been a lord of Parliament. End of part two.